Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already On the evening of December 24th, 1985, the Goldmark family home in Seattle stood quiet. Guests arrived at the property at approximately 7.30 p.m., having made plans to meet the Goldmarks for a holiday dinner, but they received no response at the front door. After repeated attempts to rouse anyone inside, the guests returned home, but felt unsettled about the abrupt cancellation. The Goldmark family consisted of four members. Charles Goldmark, 41, the family patriarch, who was a lawyer in the area, his wife Annie, 43, a French interpreter, and their two sons, 12-year-old Derek and 10-year-old Colin. The four lived in the scenic Madrona neighborhood of Seattle, which overlooked Lake Washington to the east, and they seemed to live a picturesque life. But on Christmas Eve, 1985, the four members of the family were nowhere to be found. The guests that knocked on their front door that evening returned home and later unsuccessfully attempted to call the Goldmarks. Still unsettled, they decided to return to the Goldmarks' home in Seattle and would eventually make a gruesome discovery inside. All four members of the family, Charles, Annie, Derek, and Colin, had been seriously wounded or killed but all four would die as a result of their injuries that night. The attack on the Goldmark family would remain a stain on Seattle's history books, one that most residents of the Pacific Northwest hardly remember, or they try not to remember. But the motivation for the attack, centered around a whirlwind of conspiracy theories, disinformation, and anti-Semitism, remains as important today as it did back in the waning days of 1985 when this story first unfolded. Before we get to that, we need to start at the beginning. Come with me to where the first seeds of this story were being planted on the fringes of a modern-day extremist movement. Decades before his murder, Charles Goldmark was just a child, the first of two sons born to his parents, John and Sally, on January 20, 1944. John E. Goldmark, Charles' father, was born in New York and attended Harvard Law School, serving on the Law Review and graduating with top honors in 1941. But after Pearl Harbor drew the U.S. into World War II, he became a wartime naval officer. Afterward, John married Irma Sally Ring, a New Deal worker from Brooklyn, and the two settled in Washington, D.C. Charles was born in 1944, and the family anticipated settling into a calm and quiet post-war life of conventional politics and governance. When Charles was two years old, however, the Goldmark family decided to move out west they wanted a completely different kind of life. When John was serving in the Pacific, Sally and he had written to each other about their desire to move west, where people were less twisted up in tradition, class, and inhibitions. They purchased a 5,000-acre ranch in Oconagon County, approximately 250 miles northeast of Seattle, where they began living a more rural lifestyle. Young Charles would later say that growing up on the ranch allowed him to learn things that few people ever learn. How a cow reacts to a cutting horse, what the grass is like in the spring, what the wind sounds like in a blizzard. We were in a place where your life was what you made it. No one else was in control. No one else was able to decide whether you could make it through the next day. Despite changing their way of life considerably, some things couldn't be changed. After spending more than a decade getting his ranch up and running, John Goldmark was a prominent figure in local politics, and he decided to throw his hat into the ring for the Washington State Legislature. 
1956, John Goldmark, running as a Democrat, surprised everyone in the region by eking out a win in deep red Aconagon County. He would maintain this seat handily for the next couple of terms, eventually rising to the prominent role of chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, up until 1962, when he announced he was seeking re-election for a fourth term. During this campaign, allegations were made by some of John's political rivals that he and his wife Sally were communists, or at least communist sympathizers. According to the Oregonian, Sally had been a member of the Communist Party during the Great Depression, but had left in 1942. However, this resulted in a number of political rallies and exposés centered around the gold marks, and Sally was forced to address the allegations. According to the Washington Post, Sally had attended medical school, but because of the economic hardship faced by many during the Great Depression, had to drop out. She then joined the Communist Party because she was seeking some answer to the social ills she saw around her. Shortly after she met her husband John, she became disenchanted with the ideology and quit. Much would be written about when, exactly, Sally had left the Communist Party. She claimed she had done so in 1942, about the time she and John got married. But political rivals of John's would claim she hadn't done so until 1948, or even later. Regardless, this concocted scandal marred John's political campaign throughout 1962, with him having to spend much of the time defending his wife and himself from being associated with communists. While the two would eventually file and win a libel suit for the allegations, that ruling was later overturned in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the smear campaign worked, with John losing re-election. They would return to their quiet lives as ranchers, but the seeds for today's story had already been planted, and it was in this tumultuous climate that their son Charles began reaching adulthood hoping to start a life of his own. In 1965, Charles, now going by Chuck, graduated from Reed College in Portland. While attending Reed, Charles was active in student government and the National Student Association. After graduating, he went on to attend Yale Law School on the East Coast, before spending time in the U.S. Army. Later, he took a position with the CIA. While attending a student conference in Europe, Chuck met Annie J. Carlston, a French interpreter whose parents were Swedish and French. The two became an item, eventually marrying and having two children of their own, Colin and Derek. Together, they lived in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle, where they lived just a stone's throw away from scenic Lake Washington. Annie, who was fluent in four languages, taught her sons to speak French, spending the rest of her time as a stay-at-home mother that was very active in the community. Chuck became an attorney for the law firm Wickwire, Lewis, Goldmark, and Shore in Seattle, and he also became active in public service as counsel for the Washington State Democratic Party. A friend described him as having both good judgment and good humor. This endeared him to those involved in local politics and law. He also worked with the state's Bar Association. A judge and longtime friend said about him, Charles had a mind like a steel trap. He was the sweetest, most enthusiastic, lively, and friendly person. The people that I associate with, the really bright and incisive attorneys, are usually not human beings the way Chuck was. The contrast is unique. He didn't have an angry bone in his body. He was so generous with his time. In his spare time, Charles loved mountain climbing. His law partner, James Wickwire, was a world-class climber and would often go off in excursions with Charles, including a trip to South America's Andes Mountains, which led them over multiple peaks. With his family, though, Charles loved to ski, hike, and fish. Their older son, Derek, was artistic, and their younger, Colin, was a vocal member of the school choir. In 1984, Chuck seemed to take the next step into local politics when he attended the Democratic National Convention as a delegate for Gary Hart. It seemed as if he might be following in his father's political footsteps. 
and he appeared to be poised to live a picturesque life with his family, but sadly, he didn't get the chance. And listeners, we'll be right back. Born in 1958 in Durango, Colorado, David Lewis Rice led a very different life from Charles Goldmark. David's father was a construction worker who found work by moving around constantly. So, for much of his youth, David moved throughout the Southwest, struggling to establish any kind of routine or normalcy in the earliest days of his life. To make matters worse, when he was just four years old, David ran through a sliding glass door. As a result, he not only deeply scarred his forehead, but lost most of the vision in his right eye. Later in life, he'd end up flash-burning his other eye in a welding accident. As a child, David often felt bullied or looked down upon, not only in school, where he was constantly ridiculed for his height, but also at home. His brothers would testify that they physically and mentally abused David, with one brother claiming there were multiple occasions where they had beaten or kicked him, and that they had constantly called him names because they were, quote, embarrassed at his failure to fit in with other children. Tall and skinny, David sprouted to nearly six feet tall by the time he was 12 years old. As a result, his lanky frame earned him a lot of bullying in school, and David admitted to letting smaller people hit him without doing much about it. He was known to spend much of his time alone, even during school recess or school lunch. After one particularly noteworthy fight at home, when David was about 10 years old, he went to his bedroom, locked the door, and yelled that he was going to take his own life. By the time his family managed to break down the door, David was already hanging from the ceiling. He would attempt to take his own life again sometime later. In the 10th grade, David dropped out of school, wanting to make his own way. He joined the U.S. Navy, hoping it would allow him to move away from home and establish himself somewhere else. However, he was honorably discharged during training, not even making it through boot camp. During this time, David was married to a woman in Arizona, and the two welcomed the arrival of a son. Later, however, they would divorce, and it's not believed that David had a good relationship with his son moving forward. Without much going on in his life, David decided to move to Seattle in 1982. There, things didn't improve much, and he'd spend the next couple of years in and out of shelters and multiple part-time jobs, including brief stints as a steelworker and a welder. Surprisingly, though, he managed to remain out of trouble with the law until 1984, when he was charged with two misdemeanor counts of lewd conduct involving indecent exposure. It was about this time, 1984, that David struck up a friendship with 40-year-old Ann Davis, who would have a remarkable impact on his life from this point forward. While the two would have a relationship, it seems to have been mostly one-sided. David loved Anne, who worked as a naturopathic physician, but she just wanted to be friends. Regardless, they would live together sometimes, with David moving in with Anne at her apartment on Seattle's Capitol Hill whenever he fell on hard times. But it seems to have never become a permanent thing, nor did it romantically endear him to her. Through Anne, David Lewis Rice became a member of the ultra-conservative anti-communist Duck Club, which she was a prominent member of the Duck Club, serving as the treasurer for the Seattle branch. An appeal document would describe the Duck Club as, quote, a political discussion group concerned about perceived encroachments on the people's constitutional right to control their government but it seems to have more extremist beliefs than the group's tagline would have you believe. Founded by Florida businessman Robert White in 1980, the Duck Club was named after the dozens of ducks that Robert White raised in his yard. When he started the Duck Club, White had done so with the motivation to, quote, espouse conservative political theory to the world. By 1982, the club had over a thousand chapters nationwide and they published a magazine called The Duck Book, which, according to the New York Times, quote, combines economic and investment advice with diatribes against groups Robert White identifies as America's enemies. These include the Federal Reserve Board, 
the Council on Foreign Relations, a private group, and the Trilateral Commission, an elite organization of capitalists from Europe, North America, and Japan, founded by David Rockefeller. According to the Duck Club, these groups were plotting to subjugate the national interests of the United States to the cause of a single world government. In one issue of the Duck Book, Robert White wrote that his aim was to, quote, put the fear of God into each of the pacifist, pansy patriots who gave away our canal, killed the B-1, and have virtually disarmed us for their mad, insane socialist welfare programs. In the same issue, White said that congressmen were, quote, high-rolling, golden-tongued, pussyfootin' pacifists, and claimed that the U.S. was a democratic dictatorship, seeming to identify talking points that persist among far-right groups to this day. Regardless, the Duck Club perhaps flew too close to the sun, and its founder, Robert White, began whittling down his own financial interests in the Duck Club. Only two branches would make it to 1985 one in Yucca Valley, California, and the other in Seattle, Washington. David Lewis Rice, who was unemployed, began attending meetings of the Seattle branch of the Duck Club. After becoming immersed into the extremist beliefs of the Duck Club, David, still down on his luck at the age of 27 and looking for someone to blame for his life failures, claimed that he was going to, quote, join the mercenaries and, quote, Get the commies before they get us. In the early evening hours of Christmas Eve, 1985, guests arrived at the home of Charles and Annie Goldmark. Anticipating a warm welcome and a hearty holiday dinner, they were instead greeted by a quiet house. Attempts to ring the doorbell garnered no response, and a cursory glance around the house revealed that all of the lights inside but one were turned off. The guests waited around the home for approximately 15 or 20 minutes, and they left when no sign of the Goldmark family was found. When they got home, they tried to call the Goldmarks, but kept getting a busy signal. Now, they were worried, so the guests came back to the Goldmark home, hoping for a better look inside. But their worry began to turn into real fear when they started to hear a faint sound from within the house. It sounded like moaning. Knowing that local resident Jeffrey Haley had a key to the home, the guests went to his house and returned later alongside Jeffrey Haley and his brother, Peter. Peter and Jeffrey entered the home, and, as they later reported, the moaning became, quote, very loud and very disturbing. The brothers walked upstairs, where they made visual contact with a body lying on the floor of the master bedroom. Inside the room were three additional bodies. The bodies of 43-year-old Annie, 41-year-old Charles, 12-year-old Derek, and 10-year-old Colin were all found lying on the floor of the master bedroom. Annie had been stabbed in the chest. Charles had been stabbed in the head. Their two sons faced a similar fate as their father. Charles and Annie were handcuffed with their arms behind their backs, and, according to an appeal document, Charles was yelling and, quote, thrashing about on the floor but in his delirious state did not seem aware of the Haley brothers' presence. Using a hacksaw, Peter and Jeffrey were able to remove the handcuffs from Charles to help him calm down, and emergency services arrived a short time later. By the time they arrived, Annie was already dead, and both Derek and Colin had sweaters knotted so tightly around their necks that firefighters couldn't get their fingers under the knots to untie them. The three surviving members of the family, Charles, Derek, and Colin, were barely clinging to life, and they were sent off for treatment at Harborview Medical Center's intensive care unit. Sadly, though, all three would die as a result of their injuries. First Colin on December 28th, followed by his father, Charles, on January 9th. Derek managed to hold on for 37 days, but would succumb to his wounds on January 30th, 1986. In the master bedroom where the bodies had been found, police found the murder weapons, a knife, and a steam iron. According to an appeal document, there was blood spattered on, quote, virtually every wall, concentrating on the area around the bodies. The same document stated that the pattern of bloodstains around the room 
indicated that the victims had probably been struck while they were lying on the floor. This crime would send shockwaves throughout the region, not only due to Charles Goldmark being a well-known lawyer and member of the Democratic Party, but because this crime seemed premeditated, in addition to being particularly heinous. Someone targeted the Goldmark family and had not only killed the parents, Charles and Annie, but had murdered their two children in similar fashion. A statement released by Charles' law partners said that he was, quote, one of Seattle's finest, hardest-working, and most generous and public-spirited citizens, one of the state's most brilliant and outstanding attorneys, a wise counselor, our partner, and our friend. This statement said that Charles loved Annie and his children more than anything in the world, continuing, He was the best of all of us. His death is a tragedy for everyone of goodwill in the Seattle community. The day after Christmas, December 26th, Seattle police received a call from a man named Hussein Omar Safudia. Safudia, a member of the conspiracy-minded Duck Club, believed that a member of the club was responsible for the murders. David Lewis Rice had arrived at his doorstep hours earlier on the evening of Christmas, visibly exhausted. Rice told his friend that he had been cruising and needed a place to crash that night. Safudia agreed, having not heard anything of the Goldmark murders across town, letting David stay for the night. The next morning, though, Safudia woke up while David was still sleeping and discovered a note on the coffee table. While he couldn't make sense of it at the time, the contents disturbed him. It read, To whom it may concern, I am the person you are looking for in the Goldmark case. I know that what I did was a very terrible thing. That is why I am as you see me now. I want it perfectly understood that no one else had anything whatsoever to do with what I did. I went to great lengths to make sure of that. The person that I live with doesn't even know that I am wanted on a different charge. She received a couple of messages on her machine, but I erased them before she got to them. I did not use the rifle that I purchased a few weeks ago. Instead, I fooled them with a toy pistol which you will find in the storage locker. I threw the rifle away a couple of weeks ago. Again, I want it understood that no one knew anything about this. So please, do not cause any unnecessary suffering to innocent people. I think that I've already done enough. I guess I should tell you why I did what I did. That way, you won't have to ask other people about it. My life is a mess. It has been since my wife left. Anne has been trying to help me straighten it out, but I'm afraid. The letter ended there. As I mentioned, Safudia had a hard time making sense of the letter, but learned about the Goldmark murders later that morning when he met up with some friends for coffee. At that moment, things clicked, and he decided to walk directly to a nearby payphone, dialing 911 and informing them about the so-called confession and that the alleged killer had been sleeping on his couch the night before. Police met Safudia near his apartment, and he gave them access to view everything inside of it. This included anything that David Lewis Rice had on him at the time, including the confession he had written out by hand. As police officers waited for investigators to arrive in order to make the arrest, they noted someone matching David Rice's description walking out of the apartment, spurring them into action. They approached David and he ran off, giving chase for at least a few blocks. At that moment, David Lewis Rice pulled a vial from his pocket and drank it in a quick gulp. Fearing a possible suicide attempt, officers subdued Rice and called paramedics to the scene. But it turned out they had little to worry about. The concoction was liquid nicotine. When asked why he had taken it, David said he knew he wouldn't have access to liquid nicotine in jail and he preferred it over cigarettes because he didn't want to pollute the air. When police showed David the confession he'd written the night before and left on the coffee table, he confirmed that he had been the one to write it and that its contents were true. When asked if he wanted to complete the letter or add anything to it further, he agreed, and he wrote, I am afraid that she isn't able to do much for me. I am much too far gone. When I left high school, I could go out and get a job in any town at any time I needed one. When I got married, jobs were starting to get scarce. 
I had to do more walking and searching to find work. I found myself more and more on the unemployment line, which was getting longer and longer. I went to the government offices to see what I could do to alleviate my employment situation, and they recommended that I go to school and learn engineering. At this point, in custody due to his own self-incrimination, David Lewis Rice told investigators that he was willing to fully confess, but he wanted to speak to an attorney first. He then called attorney William Lanning, who showed up shortly thereafter and consulted with David for approximately 90 minutes. William then provided police with a statement that David signed, which showed that he understood any statements he made to police could be used against him. David Lewis Rice proceeded to give a full taped confession in which he laid out his involvement in the murders of Charles, Annie, Derek, and Colin Goldmark. He claimed that his motivation for the crime had been driven by both political ideals and potential financial gain. At the time, David had been unemployed for over a year, and his unemployment had run out approximately four or five months earlier. Deeply in debt, he had been couch surfing for several months, having been staying with his friend, Ann Davis, since August of that year. When Ann left for a Christmas vacation, she told David that he could stay in her apartment and left him behind some food and money to help him coast for a bit in her absence. However, after she left, he pawned off her television for $10, a selfish act that highlighted just how desperate he was. Feeling like he was terminally unemployed, David felt like he had no place to turn to. That's why, in the months beforehand, he had begun plotting the targeted killing and robbery of the influential Goldmark family. Having become entrenched in the Seattle chapter of the Duck Club throughout 1985, David Lewis Rice said he believed Charles Goldmark to be a member of the Communist Party. He was selected as the target of David's attack because he believed that Charles could provide him information about other local communists. And, in later interviews, David indicated his intent was to work his way up the ladder of an alleged communist conspiracy to take over the country. David had started to catch on to this belief when he had discovered the writings of retired U.S. Army Colonel Gordon Jack Moore, a prominent member of the Christian identity movement and noted conspiracy theorist, whose writings were often passed around members of the Duck Club. In some Duck Club meetings, David and others decried the crumbling state of the U.S. at the time, but when mixed with the writings of Jack Moore, began to be targeted primarily at alleged communists and those of Jewish heritage, those that David and others believed were part of the conspiracy to bring America into a new global order. Of the names bandied about as local communists, one name was John Goldmark, the father of Charles. John served as a Washington House representative from 1956 to 1962, but was driven out of office due to allegations that his wife had been a member of the Communist Party. David would hear about the Goldmark allegations during a meeting of the Duck Club and ended up becoming obsessed with the name. Eventually, imprinting that obsession with John Goldmark onto his son Charles, now a noted lawyer and advocate for the Democratic Party in Washington State. Though other members of the Duck Club tried to distance themselves from the violent killing of the Goldmark family, Seattle branch president Homer Brand admitted later on, during the trial, that the Goldmark name may have come up on at least one occasion, providing David Lewis Rice with the target he felt gave him purpose. Over the next six months, David dedicated his time to planning to kill Charles and Annie Goldmark and admitted that killing them was his primary intent upon going to their house on Christmas Eve. Surprisingly, though, he didn't expect children to be there, with David claiming that if he knew that Derek and Colin were going to be there that evening, that he'd never have gone. Regardless, he had, and once he got to the doorstep of the Goldmark family, they'd seen his face, and he felt compelled to kill all of them. During his planning phase, David had tried to get a look at the Goldmark family and their property. On November 1st, weeks before the murders, David visited their neighborhood in order to, quote, see what kind of house it was and just check out the neighborhood. During that trip, David didn't see anyone home and wasn't absolutely positive they even lived there. 
Mind you, at this point, David doesn't know what Charles or Annie even look like. He only knew their name and their reputation in the community. So he was just feeling around in the dark, so to speak. About a week later, David visited Charles at his law office in order to get a glimpse of his target, but this proved unsuccessful as well. A few weeks later, in December, he'd gone back to the Goldmark home in order to identify Charles and Annie, but was again unsuccessful because no one was home. During this planning phase, David bought an M1 rifle, but later decided against using it due to its noise and bulk. When crafting his attack, which he devised as an attack on Charles and Annie, which was a precursor to him using Charles to gain information about the proposed larger conspiracy, he realized that he also needed equipment to subdue the Goldmark family. So he bought two pair of handcuffs, a toy gun, and a small amount of chloroform. He later tested the chloroform on himself to see how long the effects lasted. On Christmas Eve, in order to bluff his way into the Goldmark home, David Lewis Rice had posed as a taxi driver who was delivering a package. He first knocked on their neighbor's door, but realized he had the wrong house, and walked up the front steps to the correct home. When he rang the doorbell just after 7 p.m., one of the two boys had answered the door and called for their father, Charles, to come sign for the package. When Charles came to the door, David revealed the toy gun he'd purchased weeks earlier, which he tried masquerading as a real one. At gunpoint, he directed Charles and his two sons, Derek and Colin, into the master bedroom. Annie, who was in the shower at the time, was told by Charles to put on a robe and come out. Charles attempted to calm the situation, asking David if he needed money, giving him the $14 in cash he had lying on a nearby counter. David took it, catching glimpse of a nearby wallet. He also grabbed the wallet, taking out a bank card. He asked Charles for the pin, which Charles gave willingly, or so David thought. The number provided by Charles was false, but David had no way of knowing it at the moment. Bank card in hand, David directed all four family members to lie face down on the floor. He handcuffed Charles and Annie behind their backs, then bound their two young sons with nearby sweaters. As David was thinking about using chloroform for all four members of the family, Charles mentioned they had guests arriving at 7.30. David, not realizing the time, went ahead with his plan anyway, using chloroform to try and incapacitate his captive. He chloroformed Charles, but then struggled slightly with Annie, who had a hard time being subdued, and then chloroformed their two children. With the Goldmark family subdued and mostly unconscious, David now realized he was in well over his head. It was 7.15 p.m., and if Charles was telling the truth, they had guests arriving in 15 minutes. His dream of subduing Charles and Annie and using them to gain access to a larger global conspiracy had already fallen astray. Now he had them and their children bound and drugged on the floor and possible witnesses were arriving in mere minutes. So, David Lewis Rice did what most people would do in that situation. He panicked. But instead of using this panic to flee the scene, he took the opposite approach. He began searching the home for objects he could use to kill the family quickly, with the toy gun he used to gain entry to the home proving useless in this situation. In the kitchen, he found a 12-inch knife which he paired with the steam iron he located in the basement. He returned upstairs to the master bedroom, where Charles, Annie, Derek, and Colin lay unconscious on the floor. Wielding the iron, David began to methodically bludgeon his captives, beginning with his primary target, Charles, who he hit four or five times in the back of the head. He then turned his attention toward Annie, who he hit on top of the head. This caused her to start moving, so David hit her a couple more times to get her to stop. He then followed up by hitting each of the boys a half dozen or so times, until he believed they were dead. David went back to the bloody body of the patriarch, Charles, and checked his pulse to see if he was still breathing. He was, and so was Annie. So now David had to turn to the other weapon he'd grabbed from downstairs, the knife. 
Just to caution you, the next segment is pretty graphic and gruesome. If you need to skip ahead 30 seconds, I recommend you do that. He inserted the knife about five inches into a skull fracture he'd made with the iron in Charles' skull. The knife went in rather deep until it was hitting the opposite side of the skull, and David then kind of stirred it around. He did the same thing to the two Goldmark boys. However, unable to find a similar fracture, in Annie's skull, he stabbed her in the chest, following that up with a similar stirring motion, until he was sure she was dead. Having worn gloves to the crime scene, David now realized they were covered in blood along with his clothing. He wiped off some of the blood and removed the gloves, leaving them behind with the murder weapons. He also left behind the handcuffs he'd brought to the scene, which were still on Charles and Annie's wrists when their bodies were found. As he left the house, David turned off the lights and took the Goldmark's car keys, but was unable to get into the garage to take their car so he fled the scene on foot, leaving the neighborhood behind. At a nearby ATM, David attempted to use the bank card that he'd stolen from Charles Goldmark's wallet, but discovered the PIN number he'd been told was incorrect. He tried entering it again, but was denied access to the money. The camera inside the ATM captured pictures of David attempting, and failing, to withdraw cash from the account at 7.34 and 7.38 p.m. Realizing he'd been duped, David then circled back to his current home, Ann Davis's apartment, but he realized he'd left behind the handcuffs he'd purchased weeks beforehand. Thinking his fingerprints might be on the cuffs, he wanted to head back and retrieve them, but he went to Ann's apartment first so he could change his clothes. From there, he used some of the $14 he'd stolen to pay for a taxi back to the Goldmarks neighborhood, getting dropped off down the street to avoid suspicion. He started to walk back toward the scene of the crime, but at this point, police had already arrived and were canvassing the area. Believing himself to have been all but caught, David fled the area again, abandoning his idea of retrieving the cuffs from inside. A few blocks away, he abandoned some other pieces of evidence, the car keys, Charles' bank card, and a slip of paper he'd written the fake PIN number on. Ironically, the piece of evidence that David was most worried about, the handcuffs, did not have any identifiable fingerprints on them. His fears about incriminating himself through evidence were mostly unfounded. What followed, though, was a type of self-incrimination that only David Lewis Rice would muster. For the remaining hours of Christmas Eve and most of the following day, David wandered aimlessly around Seattle, primarily riding around on city buses believing that authorities wouldn't consider taking him alive. After all, he thought the Goldmarks were part of some global scheme. He then dedicated himself fully to writing out a confession that explained his actions and motivations for doing so. By the afternoon of Christmas Day, David decided he'd been running for long enough and needed to catch up on rest. He didn't think it was safe to return to Anne's apartment, since police might have been watching it. So he decided to head to the home of the Duck Club Seattle chapter president, Homer Brand. According to appeal documents, David told him, quote, The cops are after me. They could be arriving any minute. I've just dumped the top communist. There were four involved. Now, Homer Brand hadn't yet heard of the Goldmark murders, but he didn't believe what David was telling him. He'd only known the man for a few months and knew him to act erratically and say strange things. So he asked David to leave. From here, David turned to one of the few people he thought might believe him, or at least let him lie low for a moment so he could collect himself. That's where he turned to Robert Brown, also known as Hussein Omar Safudia, another member of the Duck Club that he'd met the year prior through Ann Davis. David told Safudia that he'd been cruising around Seattle and needed a place to sleep. Hours later, Safudia would contact police after discovering David's written confession and the rest is history. Following his confession, David was charged with one count of aggravated first-degree murder, although with each subsequent Goldmark death in the days and weeks to come, the number would rise to four. Prosecutors made it clear that they would pursue the death penalty due to the severity of the crimes. And listeners, we'll be right back. 
On December 26th, Seattle police searched the apartment belonging to Ann Davis, where David Lewis Rice had been staying off and on since August of 85. There, they found multiple pieces of evidence that seemed to back up David's confession, including the toy gun he'd used to gain entry to the Goldmark home, gloves and items of clothing he'd worn during the murders, as well as chloroform. Police also found multiple pieces of writing from David, which laid out his planning and motivations for committing the crime. One notebook contained the addresses of the Goldmark home and the law office where Charles worked. This notebook contained directions on how to get to and from the Goldmark home by bus and included an extended list entitled Basic Armaments for One Man Mission, which included the following items. A knife, grappling hook, guns, garrote, tear gas grenades, plastic explosives, and two days of rations. On a loose piece of paper, officers found a list containing the following instructions. Get knife, find out what kind of legal services, crossed out. Find out what he looks like, crossed out. When does he leave office? Does he drive? What kind of car? Set up time to be there, crossed out. In the apartment, police also found letters David had written to his friend, Ann Davis, which corroborated statements he'd made about the crime being driven by both conspiratorial paranoia and his own financial interests. One letter read as follows. Dear Anne, I am writing this in hopes that you will understand why I have decided to take a step into the dark side. Evil is a very powerful force. A long time ago, the mere mention of God was enough to send Satan scurrying for cover. This is not so anymore. This is Satan's world now. And it's going to take more than just words to break him. It's going to take an assault on his empire, so strong and so quick that he won't have the resources to recover. Another letter included the paragraph, I just wish I could have helped you with some of your problems, such as money. Believe me, I was trying desperately to fix that for you. I finally decided that I could either do it or die trying, and you know the outcome. Two days after David's arrest, December 28th, Ann Davis returned home. Two days after that, December 30th, she was questioned by police. During questioning, police told her that she could speak to David with an officer present, and she agreed. The two spoke for about 10 minutes, and, according to the officer that was present, when Anne asked David why he'd committed such a heinous crime, he told her, for the money. When asked why he had murdered the children in addition to their parents, David told her, I was in too far. I had to do it. They could identify me. According to an appeal document at around this time, David told police that Anne had been a good influence on his life, and, in doing so, he stated that his choice of communism as a target was, to a certain extent, a matter of chance. The detective recalled that David stated to me if it had not been for Ann Davis, he probably would have done something earlier, and that something might not have been the gold marks. It might not have even been communism, but it just turned out to be communism. Ironically, though, despite setting his sights on the vague idea of communism, as well as the anti-Semitic belief that a Jewish conspiracy was trying to orchestrate a global world order, neither of the Goldmark adults, nor their children for that matter, were communists, nor were they Jewish. According to an appeal document, despite David's assertions that he intended to question the Goldmarks about the activities of the local communist party, there is no indication that he ever did so. Apparently, he discussed only his need for money. The trial of David Lewis Rice would begin May 13, 1986, and the prosecution opened their case by alleging that the motivation for the crime was robbery. They argued that David was not insane at the time he committed the murders, with Michael Morrison, a member of the jail psychiatric staff, testifying that he administered the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, to David two days after his arrest. The results, he claimed, were consistent with more a character disorder than a psychotic process. A person with that profile would be cold, distant, not very empathetic, self-centered, but it was pretty unremarkable other than that. Dr. Ken Muscatel, a clinical psychologist appointed to investigate David's competency, said that he had conducted a trail-making test 
designed to uncover whether organic problems existed in the brain. David's test results revealed that no such organic brain problems exist. The doctor testified that he felt David was legally sane at the time of the murders, basing his opinion on many things, including the trail-making test results, interviews with four of David's family members, and nine interviews with David himself. He said that he would characterize David as, quote, extremely disturbed and having, quote, schizoid and paranoid features, but that David was neither psychotic nor a paranoid schizophrenic. The doctor claimed that David did not qualify as insane under either prong of the McNaughton test. This was one of the first psychological tests devised to measure criminal insanity. This test contained two prongs, which were meant to measure if the offender understood what they were doing was wrong. The first prong would measure if the offender knew what they were doing at the time of the crime, and the second prong would measure whether or not they understood that the action was wrong. For the first prong of the test, Dr. Muscatel said that David understood the nature and quality of his acts as being wrong, but still committed a crime that was planned and enacted with a high degree of organization, awareness, and cognizance. The doctor noted David's preparations and the full awareness and deliberation with which he murdered the Goldmarks, and also said there was no evidence of substantial confusion or severe disorganization, either in the behavior leading up to, during, or after the crime. With the second prong, while David had difficulty distinguishing right from wrong on the night of the murders, he was capable of doing it. David's difficulty stemmed from his stated belief that he was justified in what he was doing, considering himself to be in a war against evil. According to an appeal document, Dr. Muscatel felt that this difficulty was not sufficient to make David incapable of telling right from wrong. He even said, quote, Although David's ideas as to his mission in fighting evil were at first glance delusional, idiosyncratic, and psychotically based, on closer examination, they turned out to be ideas that he had learned from various right-wing groups and individuals with whom he'd associated, including Ann Davis. Therefore, his belief system, with the exception of the extraterrestrial communication, was not delusional at all but rather represented ideas shared by those around him. So listeners, you're probably wondering, what extraterrestrial communication? Well, as part of his insanity defense, David Lewis Rice and his attorneys argued that he had been hearing foreign thoughts in his head, which he perceived to be from extraterrestrials. More on this in a minute. But the appeal document continued. Second, David knew that killing was wrong in general, and that even if he felt he was justified in killing the Goldmark parents, he did not feel a similar justification in killing the children. Thus, at least with respect to the children, Rice was capable of distinguishing right from wrong. Finally, the doctor pointed out the many ways in which Rice's attempts to conceal his activity showed that he knew society considered these killings to be wrong and against the law. For example, Rice used gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints. He threw away the bank card and car keys when he realized that the bodies had been discovered. And he took care to wipe blood from his clothing and to turn out the lights before he left the house. Additionally, Rice wrote letters in which he acknowledged that his acts were criminal in nature. For all of these reasons, Dr. Muscatel concluded that Rice was capable of telling right from wrong. Back to the extraterrestrial communication, the doctor said that David described the communication as urges to follow on certain actions. While David didn't always feel compelled to follow these urges, he could, quote, follow them or not follow them, although if I didn't follow them, bad things tended to happen. If I did follow them, good things tended to happen. While it absolutely seems like David Lewis Rice was heavily influenced by the voices surrounding him in the vital months before he murdered the Goldmark family, his decision to uncover the alleged communist conspiracy by violent means, that was his own. None of the other members of the Duck Club that he'd communicated with in the months prior cooperated with him, and he had done his best to withhold information about it from them. However, David believed that they would approve of his actions after the fact possibly finding that the ends justified the means, and if they did, 
none of them would admit it during their own testimony. Dr. John Mullins, a neurologist, conducted a complete general physical and neurological examination of David and found him to have relatively normal results. Dr. Mullins said he concluded that David had no evidence of any organic central nervous system disease or intracranial abnormalities. He also carried out an IQ test for David, with the results showing that David had a normal or perhaps high average intelligence. A Rorschach test revealed that David had a deep personality disorder and a disordered childhood, but it disclosed no inference of a psychotic thinking. When presenting their case, the prosecution argued that David's characterization of his health changed between his arrest in December and January when doctors began examining him ahead of his trial. They alleged that David had time to make up evidence of mental illness while sitting in jail in order to bolster his insanity plea. To prove this allegation, the prosecution told the jury about the inconsistencies between David's responses to questions on the MMPI, which was administered to him four days after the murders, and the answers David gave Dr. Mullins a month later. During the MMPI, David said he wasn't experiencing certain symptoms, but when he was examined by Dr. Mullins, suddenly, David was experiencing all these symptoms. His motivation, which had originally been equal parts robbery and conspiracy, also began to veer further into the conspiracy territory, even though he hadn't mentioned communism or a conspiracy when committing the crime. By all indications, he had simply robbed and murdered the Goldmark family, but leaning on the conspiracy seemed to bolster what little defense David Lewis Rice had. For their part, the defense did not try and contest the fact that David had killed four members of the Goldmark family. Instead, they attempted to downplay David's culpability, claiming he was legally insane at the time. According to an appeal document, the defense argued in two separate ways that David was insane at the time he committed the crime. The defense had multiple witnesses, including David's friend Ann Davis, testifying about some of his unorthodox views. For example, David believed a nuclear war was pending, and he wanted to build an underground shelter in Colorado, a shelter big enough to house hundreds of people for decades until the radiation died down, when he could help guide them into a new type of society. Another example was David's belief that he had a black box in his head, into which he put problems that he could not solve. Also, most noteworthy, the defense claimed that David believed extraterrestrials gave him guidance in choosing his actions by, quote, furnishing him with the specifications for building the underground shelter. David's attorney, Anthony Savage, claimed that David, quote, believed in the communist conspiracy aided by the International Bankers and Federal Reserve Board. The extreme right did not cause his illness, but his mental illness provided a fertile ground for their philosophy. Despite their attempts to sway the jury on David's mental state at the time of the killing, the defense was ultimately unsuccessful. On June 5, 1986, the jury found David Lewis Rice guilty on four counts of aggravated first-degree murder. This made him eligible for the death penalty. Following his conviction, David refused to eat or communicate with nearly everyone becoming so despondent that officials delayed his sentencing hearing so that he could be analyzed by psychologists. Following a suicide attempt, he was then analyzed by a trio of psychiatrists who disagreed about the level of David's competence and the general state of his mental health at this point in June of 1986. However, all three agreed that David definitely suffered from a paranoid delusional disorder, with one remarking that David's mental illness, quote, substantially impaired his ability to make reasoned choices and his ability to understand the consequences of those choices, including any waiver of rights. This was not enough to deter the wheels of justice. Sentencing was delayed, but a date was set, and the hearing was still carried out. Jurors asked to replay the recording of David's tape confession, and even though David wasn't in the courtroom to object, his attorneys waived his rights to be present and allowed the tape to be played again. During this penalty phase of sentencing, in their closing arguments, the prosecution stated, Put yourself, if you will, in the shoes of those two children who have been gathered in their parents' bedroom with a man who they believe has got a gun. 
And as they're told to lay down on the floor, face down in their parents' bedroom, they comply. And it's starting to come to Derek and Colin that whatever child believes that their parents can protect them from anything, especially in their own home, it's not true. And as Derek and Colin hear the click of the handcuffs fastening around the wrists of their father, and the click of the handcuffs as they're gathering around the wrists of their mother, what are they thinking? And as the defendant comes closer to them and cinches the sweaters up tight, these are factors that you should consider in having in mind the crime. Then the defendant going with the chloroform, first to dad, and there is no indication that there was any words or struggle at that point. Then to the mother, who struggled as the nasty smell that the defendant talked about. Then finally to the point where that nasty smell of chloroform is coming closer to their faces. And their last conscious thoughts on this earth are the terror in that bedroom. And that is the crime that the defendant committed. That is the crime that you have to have in mind when you weigh whether the state has convinced you beyond a reasonable doubt that the mitigating circumstances, the so-called mitigating circumstances, merit leniency. When the jury announced that they had a verdict, the court learned from jail officials that David had ingested a substance of some sort, consisting primarily of tobacco, which David had stockpiled and then boiled together into a liquid, and was going to have his stomach pumped at a nearby hospital. He wasn't able to return to the courtroom for approximately two hours, so the judge asked both sides if they cared if the verdict was read without David present, and both sides agreed. On June 10, 1986, the jury decided that David Lewis Rice should be executed for the crimes he had committed. More than a month later, on July 21st, David was sentenced to death, becoming the seventh man on Washington State's death row. While no executions had been carried out in over 20 years, David now had to face the very real possibility of choosing his fate, the needle or the noose. Despite appealing his death sentence multiple times, David Lewis Rice and his attorneys had an uphill battle that was chock full of failure. Eventually, he filed a writ of habeas corpus in federal district court based on his attorneys having waived his right to be present during the penalty phase. Tana Wood, the superintendent of the Washington State Penitentiary, appealed David's writ of habeas corpus saying that David wasn't entitled to any habeas relief because he waived his right to be present by ingesting his homemade concoction of tobacco in what was believed to be a suicide attempt. In response, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said that the Supreme Court of Washington assumed David drank the tobacco substance in an effort to take his own life. It may not be unreasonable to think that David was trying to end his life, but the state of Washington never conducted a fact-finding mission to determine why he had swallowed the substance, nor what his mental state was at the time he did so. The court would eventually rule that not allowing David to be present during the sentencing hearing, when the jury had sentenced him to death, was a structural defect in the criminal proceedings, not just a harmless or clerical error. Per the decision, it was, quote, critically important that the return of the death verdict and the polling of the jurors take place in David's presence, where each juror would have to look him in the eye and reaffirm his or her jury room vote, declaring in open court that David did not deserve to live. In his petition for relief, David had also alleged ineffective counsel, citing their failure to determine his mental competency before allowing him to confess. David said his attorneys did not advise him to not confess without a lawyer present. Rather, they allowed him to visit someone at the police station where a detective was present and record incriminating statements. David also claimed that his counsel encouraged him to speak to the press prior to the trial and failed in not seeking to exclude certain evidence from being presented in the trial, namely his taped confession. He also claimed, perhaps most importantly, that his counsel failed to discover certain exculpatory psychiatric evidence. When petitioning for relief, David said that a pretrial mental exam, which showed that he may have suffered from a paranoid delusional disorder, had been withheld from the defense by the prosecution, constituting Brady material, which would violate due process under the law. David also alleged that he was improperly coerced into taking a psychological evaluation without his attorneys present. 
and without being told that the results could be used against him at trial, which they later were. After many years of back and forth, in January 1995, David's death sentence was reversed, opening him up to a new penalty trial. The county prosecutor and state attorney general decided that if David pleaded guilty, he could receive a life sentence in lieu of heading to trial and possibly receiving the death penalty yet again. So on May 27, 1998, David pleaded guilty to all four counts of aggravated first-degree murder and was later sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. He is currently incarcerated in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, and he is 64 years old as of this writing and recording. In 1992, the city of Seattle unveiled the Goldmark Overlook in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle. Located next to Lake Washington, the Overlook is adorned with a commemorative plaque bearing the likeness of the four members of the Goldmark family, providing visitors with a direct line of sight to Western Washington's crown jewel, Mount Rainier. It bears a small passage. This Overlook is named in memory of Charles, Annie, Derek, and Colin Goldmark who loved Seattle and its open spaces. Nearly 40 years have passed since the murders of these four Seattleites, but their story has never been more relevant. In an era where misinformation reigns supreme, stories like theirs are becoming more and more prevalent, with anti-Semitic incidents hitting a record high in 2021. As reported by the Anti-Defamation League, an organization that has been tracking these incidents for over four decades now, Nearly 3,000 incidents were reported in the last calendar year, many of which were misguided attacks centered around paranoid delusions and conspiracy theories. Despite neither Charles nor Annie Goldmark being Jewish or having any communist leanings, it didn't stop their killer, David Lewis Rice, from targeting them for their perceived link, which was based on decades-old paranoid political attack ads centered around Charles' parents. In an interview with PBS NewsHour, author Jonathan Greenblatt explained what he thinks can be done to help stem attacks like this from taking place. So, number one, I think individuals should be feel empowered to interrupt intolerance when it happens, call out hate when you hear it, whether it's directed at Jewish people or, by the way, anyone else. And in our polarized society, we often don't want to. We point to the other side. But we need to call it out when it happens among our own. Conservatives calling it out when conservatives do it, and liberals calling it out when liberals do it. That's really important. I think the social media companies could play a huge role. Their algorithms don't need to amplify intolerance and anti-Semitism. Just a little bit more discretion by the companies could dial down the drama dramatically. And then finally, I'd like to see policymakers bring anti-bias education into classrooms, bring communities together. There's a lot more that could be done. It's hard to say whether or not these changes could have influenced the thinking of David Lewis Rice decades ago when he decided to make the horrible decision to murder the Goldmark family under the delusional belief that they were part of some global conspiracy. However, if someone close to him had tried to talk some sense into him, and I mean really talk to him and tried to level with him about his conspiratorial thinking, then it's possible this entire incident could have been avoided. Charles and Annie could have grown old together, and their children would likely have children of their own by now. Instead, their stories are destined to remain a cautionary tale for the rest of time, remembered by those that knew and loved them. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. You know those dads who literally never sit down? That was Danny. He constantly was doing something either for them or with them. Hashtag girl dad, totally. We hope to one day have a son, which was taken from us. If you make a mistake, there's a very severe possibility you're both going to get shot. Do you understand that? Yes.
wanted to do our best to secure, make sure everybody was safe. So we started making verbal commands. Shut up. You listen, you obey. You started screaming. Uh, I would describe it as yelling very loudly. Please do not shoot me. Okay, listen to my instructions. I'm trying to do it. Don't talk. Listen. He's crawling towards the police, crying, please, please don't shoot me. The officer shot him five times. Hands straight up in the air. Do not put your hands down for any reason. You think you're going to fall, you better fall on your face. Crawl towards me! (laughs) Jesus Christ, they murdered that guy! And, and he gets, blood. he got off, and he got blood. off. They, they murdered, they, they killed this guy. I mean, it looks, it looks a lot like murder. Cop who killed, fired from the force, is now getting paid, collecting a taxpayer-funded check every month for the rest of his life. She received a phone call from her eight-year-old school. She tried choking herself while she was at school and told her friend that she wanted to die. I lost everything in my life. Mesa's watching every single video on here, so I want to make this message very clear to them. I am not going to stop fighting until my husband gets justice. You didn't realize who you were messing with when you killed Daniel Shaver. I am Lainey Sweet, I'm his wife, and I will not stop fighting. You just listened to the trailer for the new season of my podcast, Tapes from the Dark Side. The execution of Daniel Shaver is the investigation into the 2016 police shooting of an unarmed man. It's often described as the most disturbing police shooting ever caught on tape. This multi-part series will examine the depravity of the Mesa Police Department's actions that night and the ensuing corruption that is still ongoing to this day. This is Tapes from the Dark Side, The Execution of Daniel Shaver. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and all podcast apps. Subscribe today. Just search Tapes from the Dark Side. (laughs) 